welcome to Fonts and Fauna, a podcast about creatures real. Or otherwise. I am the son of Steve Buscemi from Spy Kids 2, <laughs> Cody. And with me is uh, ranked number one on Animal Planet's 72 Most Dangerous Animal Enthusiasts, Ash. <laughs> Hello, everybody. How's it going? Oh, we're good. Thanks for asking. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. It's really nice outside today, which is very fun. That's what our that's what I assume the our hive mind of friends mm. sounds like. Well, shall we just jump into that's it? That's what we do. We're like kangaroos in a billabong. Yeah. Got it in one. Well, listeners, let me take you away to an Arabian night. Today, I am going to be talking to you about the Arabian Oryx. Ooh, (laughs) okay. So the Arabian Oryx is a type of antelope, and they are native to the desert and steppe regions of the Arabian Peninsula. Very cool. They were actually extinct in the wild by the early 70s, but through zoos, private reserves, and other conservation efforts, the oryx was reintroduced into the wild in the 80s. Hey, humanity, one for a thousand. Woo! But we got this one. (laughs) So they're technically still considered vulnerable, Mm -hmm. but they are the first animal to revert back to that status after being listed as extinct in the wild. Holy cow. Yeah, so... Good on us. Yeah, good. well, I'm sure the Oryx did most, well. They, we'll get into good it Good on later. everyone. We'll get into it. No negativity here, all positivity for the Oryx. So, in 2016, there was around 1,220 estimated in the wild, hmm. and around 850 of those were mature adults. Oh, okay. And there were between six to 7,000 in captivity around the world. Okay. Huh. So that was back in 2016, which was the most recent statistic I could find. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that the, I would like to think that the numbers have gone up, but I'm not entirely sure. So moving into the anatomy, the oryx is about one meter tall at the shoulder and weighs about 70 kilograms or 150 pounds. So they're kind of small. They're pretty solidly built though. Mm-hmm. Uh, They have an all-white coat on their body, but their legs are brown, and they also typically have, like, black striping or splotching or Hmm. spots or whatever on their head, the nape of their neck, their, like, forehead, nose, eyes. They sound really cool. Yeah, they're beautiful, beautiful creatures. Both the males and the females have horns, and they stick, like, almost straight up with a slight curve Hmm. toward the back. Uh, the horns range from 50 to 75 centimeters or 20 to 30 inches. Whoa. So the horns are like comparable to their body. Like yeah. Almost as big. Yeah. They have really Very long cool. horns. So now moving into the life and behavior. Oryx range in gravel or hard sand deserts because it allows them to outrun their predators. Oh. Typically, these creatures will rest during the day because it's so hot, mm-hmm. you know, and their diet consists of grasses for the most part, but they'll also eat other vegetation like buds, herbs, fruit, tubers, and roots. Hmm. They can also go several weeks without water, but a cool thing about them is they kind of have like a built-in dowsing rod. So... Whoa. <laughs> So these animals can detect when rain is coming 
and where it's coming from. And they will migrate toward it. So a herd in Oman, which is a country in the southeastern coast of the Arabian Peninsula, Uh a herd there could range over 3,000 square kilometers or 1,200 square miles. That migration is even crazier when you think about the size of the herd. Typically, a herd only consists of like 2 to 15 individuals. Oh. So it's really, really small, but they Mm. walk a ton. Now, is that in modern times or do we know like from the 1800s what kind of numbers these guys were were rolling in? Were they rolling deep? I don't know. Huh. There have been some reports of some herds that have reached up to 100 individuals, Uh but that's really rare. Hmm. It's usually like around 10 is the average. They keep it... A tight-knit group. Yeah. Uh, They're not aggressive or territorial, really. Mm. So herds can exist peacefully while traveling. And I'm not really sure how the herds are differentiated amongst themselves, but I'm assuming that it's like the similar methods of other bovine where Mm -hmm. like the alpha males will kind of just be like, hey, they'll click their knees at each other or something. (laughs) Click sneeze. So within the herd... The hierarchy is established by the subordinate males will stand between the main part of the herd, consisting of, like, the dominant males and females, and then there will be some, like, outlying females, and so it's, like, a clump of the main people, Mm -hmm. and then the subordinate males, and then, like, whatever random females just want to be alone. Hmm. So, if separated... This is kind of sad. If separated, the subordinate males will just, like sniff around and try to find the last spot that they knew the herd to be and they'll just kind of hang out there and wait for them to come back oh Oh. yeah that's really sad yeah it's like no they said they were gonna be here it's like when you're at the restaurant it's like hey do you want to just go ahead no 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 they're they're, they're coming Uh they're coming yeah so the males will establish dominance via posture displays They didn't really explain what that meant, but these animals have, like, a distinct hump on their shoulder that's, like, it's not as distinct as a bison, but, like, it's definitely noticeable. Uh So I don't know if they'll just, like, thrust their, like, shoulder bump up, Uh I don't know, to make themselves seem bigger. Mm. But in doing this, they prevent unnecessary injury to the herd because they don't fight with their horns or anything. Oh. Like, they'll use it for defense against uh-huh. inter- interlopers, if you will, but they don't interlopers, typically... Interlopers, if you will. <laughs> but yeah, they don't typically, like, fight amongst themselves mm. at all. They'll just kind of, like, posture themselves to look real beefy. Uh, and It's like, like middle school. Just a lot of posturing. Basically, yeah. So when these creatures aren't like wandering around, roaming, trying to find the water, the oryx will dig shallow divots in like the softer ground of their area underneath trees and just kind of hang out. Mm -hmm. As we've seen in many animals that live in extreme environments, these animals are also able to change their physiology and behavior depending on the season. This is particularly noticeable in the summer because they live in the desert. So the summer in the desert is brutal. Yeah. In order to survive, these oryx have adapted to be able to do extraordinary things. So during the summer, the oryx will lower its metabolism by almost exclusively laying down under trees during the day Mm. and foraging at night when the sun has gone down. That's about what I do in the summer. (laughs) Well, this 
practice allows their body temperature to rise during the day without any extra exertion, Mm. which would make them sweat. And since they're not sweating, they're retaining more water. So during times of drought, they can like sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but they are also able to lower the temperature of their blood through heat exchange, like we saw in the caribou. Oh, yeah. But they do it to keep cool instead of keep warm. Also, these animals can reduce their urine volume, fecal water loss, and resting metabolic rate by at least 50% during the summer. Dude, desert animals are crazy. Yeah. So that, again, helps them to survive in times of drought and famine and like crazy instances like that. Mm. They don't really have predators other than humans and wolves. Oh, yeah. So, like, they kind of just hang out, you know? I like these guys. Yeah, they're really cool. In captivity and safe conditions in the wild, meaning times that there's not drought or famine, Uh uh, these animals can live up to 20 years. That's pretty good. So, uh, obviously, like I said, during times of drought or famine, that is significantly shortened. Mm -hmm. Other causes of death are usually fatal fights among animals males who are like having any kind of like mating Mm -hmm. fight or something like that snake bites disease drowning during floods very a la oregon trail Uh, (laughs) so now to move into the human relations portion they have a, a bit of a rough history the oryx used to be found all over the middle east hmm But in the 30s, people started hunting these animals, going out in parties as big as 300 men. Whoa. Yeah. By the middle of the 20th century, the population was essentially extinct. And since being introduced into the wild, these animals are found primarily in the wilds of the Arabian Peninsula. Hmm. And the animals have a lot of cultural significance for many countries of the Middle East, For example, they're the national animal of Jordan, Oman, the UAE, or United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Qatar. Holy cow. Yeah. And now we're getting into kind of like your side of things. The myth of the unicorn possibly came from sightings of the oryx. What? Yeah. So Aristotle... And Pliny the Elder believed that the oryx was the unicorn's prototype, essentially, and that people who would Whoa. see the uh, oryx either were seeing it as an oryx that had lost a horn, uh-huh. and so it only had one, or from certain angles, the way their horns are oriented, it can look as though they only have one horn. Interesting. The oryx can't regrow their horns, so oh. if they if they only have if they lose one they only have one for the rest of their life wow another source for the misconception comes from the septuagint ah that's part of the bible right yep so when the hebrew word reem meaning oryx wild bull wild ox whatever was translated into greek as monokeros monokeros oh. means one horn So when the Septuagint was translated from Hebrew to Greek, it went from being this wild animal to a one-horned beast. Interesting. There are translations of the Bible that maintain the unicorn translation, but there are also many that have 
changed it uh-huh. to be like wild bull, ox, and buffalo. And the Arabic translation of the Bible actually is the most accurate etymologically. And the translation is the Hebrew Rayem to the Arabic Alrim, which means white oryx. Huh. Cool. And finally, these animals are still under preservation and conservation efforts. And I would like to just really quick shout out the Phoenix Zoo and the Fauna and Flora Preservation Society of London with help from the World Wildlife Fund because they are credited with saving these animals hey, from extinction. Great work, guys. So, and that is all I have for you on the Arabian Oryx. Wow. Good work, Oryx. Good work, people. For once. <laughs> yeah, we can do it, guys. So what creature do you have for me this week? Well, this week we are traveling all the way to Slovakia. Ooh. Yeah. This week we're going to be talking about Simargol, who is a Slavic deity who is usually depicted as a winged dog or wolf. Ooh. This winged dog or wolf, and he's usually depicted with a bunch of plants growing out of his mouth, and his tail is also sometimes represented with uh, branches growing out of it huh? or even like a whole tree for a tail interesting wait how big is it if a whole tree is its tail big fair enough <laughs> you know how deities they can like change size that's stuff, true so. that's true however his tail is also sometimes a snake or a fish and in case you didn't get the clue already it's a little bit complex uh what he is and what he does it kind of sounds like if, like, Freya had a pet, this would be... What? Or, like, if, um, oh, what's his name? Pan. If Pan had a pet oh, dog, it would be this dog, yeah. I feel. So, I know, I knew nothing about Slavic mythology, and I still know yeah. almost nothing about it. But it is so interesting, cool. and we're going to get into it a little bit here. So, like I said... His role is about as complex as his anatomy. Okay. Um, some sources associate him with the care of plants, as indicated by like the tree and stuff. Yeah. But also by his name, Simargol, which can be tied to the Iranian deity, Simurg, huh. who is the guardian of plants. And we'll have more on Simurg later. So we both picked creatures from the Middle East. Well, I'm talking about Smargol, who is like... Ukraine, oh. Russia. Okay, right. Um, but we're going to talk about Smurk quite a bit because it's just different names. Others claim that he is the god of, or like other sources, you find references to him being the god of physical fire as opposed to Svarog, who's the god of celestial fire. Hmm. Um, and he's said to be, well, I'll just leave it at that because we'll talk about that more later also. Can I ask a question? Yes. What What's the difference between like physical fire and celestial fire? That's an excellent question, and I don't have the answer for you. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I would guess that physical fire is like the fire that we use right. you know, every day, and celestial fire would be more like the sun, the stars, um, oh, things yeah, that provide that light. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, that would be my guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, makes sense to me. But yeah, like I said, it's a bit of both, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So, who is Smargle? Who my is best his, friend. Who is his family? My best friend, Smargle. <laughs> that's my sitcom that's coming out, guys. Check it out on TBS. <laughs> so his wife is Kupalnitsa, uh, who's the goddess of night. Okay. He has two kids, Kupalo, who is the god of midsummer, peace, magic, water, 
herbs, and joy. What a great guy. This dude is awesome. And I looked at pictures. He looks like Santa Claus. Oh, well, of course he does. Yeah. And he's also the father of Kostroma, who is a fertility goddess. Okay. Um, so they're just like one big what happy family. What a great family. family, right? So we talked about his kind of chimera-esque body with the head of the wolf, wings like an eagle or some kind of bird, and a serpent's tail. Does he have the body of a wolf or dog? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So according to one author, these three distinct creature parts are like very, very important to kind of the Slavic culture. Okay. And just kind of his role in the mythology. So with the snake, you see ties to like the underground or just like the physical, like under the earth. Mm -hmm. With the wolf's body, it's like just kind of the earth as we know it, like Like, plants and... Okay. So like underground, above ground, Mm -hmm. and then the wings, obviously the sky. Right, okay. Um, So why is this important? So... We talked earlier about how his tail can morph into a tree. Mm -hmm. And this is where we're going to put a pin in everything I just said and pivot over to Smurg. Okay. Smurg, who is said to be, is an Iranian deity who is said to be the wisest being in the world because it has seen the destruction of creation three times. Hmm. Smurg lived on top of the world tree. Wait, like Yggdrasil? Like Yggdrasil, but Iranian. Huh. So we're starting to see like a lot of connections between all of these. You talked about Freya earlier. Uh Uh-huh. So Smurg is the guardian of the world tree. Hmm. And so Smurg and Smargle, there's like a big connection where Smurg's the guardian of the world tree. Well, we talked about how Smargle, his tail is a tree. Uh Uh-huh. But we talked about his three parts. Yeah. Ground, like... So like underworld, uh-huh. earth, uh-huh. and then sky. Sky, yeah. Just like the three parts of the world tree, the its roots, roots the trunk, trunk and, and its the branches. branches. So he's kind of a personification yeah. of the world tree. Huh. Not just the protector, but the thing itself. Yeah. But the connections to Norse mythology don't stop there. Okay. So where does he live then if he's the world, like, he is the world tree, but Smargle also just the good wolf boy. So Zoria, solar goddess and the embodiment of dawn, basically, has chained Smargle to the star Polaris in the constellation Ursa Minor. Why? Because Smargle is said to bring about the destruction of that constellation and also cause the end of the world. Like the Fenris Ragnarok. Wolf. Whoa. Yeah. So he's like the world, they're like crazy connections between the world tree, but also Fenris Wolf. That's crazy. Yeah. And so that's why you see him being the god of fire. Yeah. Because he brings about the, the end of yeah. the world. <laughs> Whoa. That's crazy. And that's all I could find about this guy. He sounds really cool, though. Yeah. And, like, his whole family. It's so wild. Yeah. 
Wow. And the fact that his daughter is the fertility goddess, and I said, like, Freya, who is also the fertility yeah. goddess. There's so many connections. That's crazy. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Wow. Well, cool. Thank you for telling us about him. Yeah, of course. And thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and you guys are doing a great job. And if you're having a bad day, remember, at least you don't have teeth in your butt. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.